Now, I'm going to do a hard left turn, and uh, I want to get into our passage for this morning, because we have this wonderful but strange passage that we're going to be looking at today. Um, And as we dive in, I just maybe want to set a little context. Uh, As we speak, how many of you know that there's war happening? Yeah, there's a lot of war happening in the world. I mean, these are just wars that we know about, but we know about uh, Israel-Gaza, we know about Hezbollah, we know about Hamas, we know actually still that there is an ongoing conflict in Ukraine. How many of you know that? Too, it's not really abating. Uh, and I don't really want to legislate on either one of those conflicts or on either one of those sides or give actually theological framing. I just want to say they're bad, aren't they? And that's just overseas. News on the home front, not so great either. Yes? So anyway, how many of you have been following what's been going on with OpenAI, Sam Altman? Any, any of you have been following that? Some of you have been. Uh, whether you've been following AI and uh, Sam Altman's unceremonious sort of like firing and then all of a sudden his like abrupt rehiring, it's all very, very weird. Uh, whether you've been following that or not, whether you have an opinion on that or not, I bet at least most of you have heard we got to be careful with AI. How many of you have heard that? Yes? How many of you heard dire warnings about it? Like maybe this could be the end of the world as we know it. Anyone heard that about AI? Some of us have. Uh, that's just AI. Now, what about social media? Anybody heard anything about social media lately? I mean, how many of you know that the Supreme Court has actually like decided it would wade into the future of free speech online? So there were laws passed in Texas and Florida restricting social media uh, companies from removing certain political posts or accounts. I just read one news source about that. Uh, so even social media, there is don't feel super great about, do we? Um, and if you do any research in social media, one of the things that you realize, or as you read, is you realize that there's a lot of correlative, correlative research between social media and mental health issues. Yes? Have we read that? Heard about that at all? Um, now, take out your phones and delete Instagram. No, I'm kidding. I'm not asking you to do that. I, I just, I, but I'm, I'm saying it's mixed. It's very, very mixed. In fact, I read this book on generational theory just recently. I'm really fascinated by generational cohorts. And uh, while I was reading this book that just came out this year, copiously researched, lots of data. Uh, the author is careful not to be too bleak as she writes about the future of our young people, um, I got very, very concerned just because of everything that I was reading. So war, social media, AI, uh, it's hard not to look at everything and think, the world is ending. Or you must be on the verge of coming back again, Jesus. Yes? It's hard not to think that. Uh, There's a poem that I discovered recently by Yeats, um, and Yeats, like, cues very closely to that feeling uh, with this poem, Second Coming. I'll just read a little bit of it. He writes, Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. It's almost like he's living in the 21st century, yes? But he's not. 
some of you know that this poem was written, I believe, like roughly toward the end of World War I. And uh, I mean, it's, if you think about World War I, uh, and if you were living at that time, you probably thought, well, the world is going to end. You saw the world in conflict. And philosophers and historians will tell us that uh, the time of World War I was actually the shredding apart of our moral and social imagination. It was like a really critical inflection point. And here you've got Yeats writing about it. And if you read the rest of the poem, which I don't necessarily recommend, uh, it's not super hopeful. So why am I telling you all this? The point I'm trying to make is that the feeling the world is about to end is not new. It's not new. The feeling that the world is about to end is not a new feeling. In fact, uh, if you map that feeling across the centuries, you would see, well, people have felt this all the time. Uh, from my personal history, how many of you remember the 90s? Anyone? Remember the 90s? Woo, the 90s, Gen X forever, right? So the 90s, right? So does anyone remember the internet coming about? Does anybody remember what everyone was saying about the internet? Anyone remember how people were, whoa, we're scared about this thing. We don't know what it's going to do. Uh, does anyone remember Y2K? Does any, did anybody uh, like actually like buy cases of water and uh, perishable or non-perishable cans of food? Did anybody do that? Anybody do that? Because you were like, man, we didn't figure out that the computers when the the date would switch, would actually shut the world down. So now we're really concerned about it. Anybody actually stay up all night and wait? Did anybody do that? Some of us did, yes? Because we thought the world is ending. This feeling, the world is ending. This feeling like dire warnings. This feeling of like anxiety. Uh, Jesus himself warns the disciples about it. Our scripture for this morning is uh, Mark chapter 13. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn with me to Mark 13. And we're going to look at actually the last a few verses of Mark 13, 24 through 37. Uh, and the reason why we're looking at Mark 13 today is because it's the reading, the gospel reading in the first Sunday of Advent in the lectionary, which may mean something to you. It may not mean something to you, but it's just a passage that I just want to say all over the world, people are reading this passage this morning. And so we want to look at Mark 13. And here's in Mark 13, here's Jesus saying, you're going to feel like the world is ending, but it's not. Uh, Mark 13, if you know some of that, let me give some of the context. If you know a little bit about Mark 13, you know that that Mark 13 begins with Jesus and his disciples, and they're in Jerusalem, and they've just come out of the temple, and the disciples are like in awe of how beautiful, wonderful, grand, large the temple is. And so they say to Jesus, look, teacher, what massive stones. If you've ever, if you've ever actually been to Israel or the Middle East, and you've seen the foundation stones that they use to build buildings, has anyone ever seen those, how huge they are? I mean, they are enormous. It's not like the stones... Like that are sort of like the foundation of our buildings. So these are huge, like enormous, enormous stones. I don't even know how they move them. Um, and here the disciples are in awe. Um, surely nothing can, can move the temple. And Jesus then says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So this is Mark 13, uh, which is the beginning of our passage. Uh, it's the chapter in which we find our passage. And here's Jesus saying to, to his disciples, the pride of Israel, the temple, 
and all it represented, the favor of God for the people of Israel, it's going to be thrown down, torn down. And wouldn't you know, it happens in AD 70. The temple is torn down. And what Jesus wants to say to the disciples is he wants to say to them something very, very clear. He wants to say, that's not the end of the world. When the temple gets torn down, it's not the end. In fact, he even doubles down on that. And he says, believe it or not, not even war. You're going to hear about war. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, what does he say? He doesn't say the world is about to end. He says, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. It's not the end. The end is still to come. And then he goes on to say, here's some more bad news. You will be persecuted. You will be betrayed. Some of you will be killed. And that's not even the new end either. And, oh, by the way, there's going to be a lot of people that come around and say that they're me. Uh, but that's not the end either. Jesus tells us that they are birth pains. They're not the end of the world. They are birth pains. The, the temple is going to be destroyed. You're going to be in war. You're going to hear about war. And you're going to be in war. Uh, you're going to get killed. Probably a lot of you are. Um, and then there's a lot of people that are going to pretend to be me. And that's not, none of that, all that distress, all that doom, none of that is the end. Which brings us to our passage for this morning. We are looking at Mark 13, 24 through 37. And as we arrive at this passage in this strange text, Jesus is saying that the end does not belong to doom. The end does not belong to distress. The end does not belong to the destruction of the temple. The end, as Jesus says to his disciples, belongs to me. Jesus tells the disciples, I am the end. And here's what he says in Mark 13, verse 24. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man, Jesus, coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of of the heavens. I think what Jesus wants to tell us today in this passage is that you can look at everything that's happening in the world today and you can think, well, gosh, maybe that's the end. And Jesus is like, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Because the end does not belong to doom. It's mine. It's mine. And when he comes, as Mark tells us, Jesus will come in great power and glory. This is Jesus' promise to us. He's going to come. And when he comes this time, everybody is going to know about it. Notice how, uh, now I know that we're going to talk about the first coming, because that's sort of what Advent is about. Notice how different the return is from his first coming. So when he first came in, the, in Christmas, you know, like we celebrate this, he came in a manger with no one but, but poor shepherds and some animals and a few wise men who were we're kind of like in stealth mode, trying to hide from Herod. You, you remember this? We, we sort of talk about it. We almost sort of sanitize it with the way that we talk about the nativity like now. But man, that was like hard. It was secret, very, very secret. It had to be under the cover of secret because Herod was like, I am going to kill this baby. It was a kind of secret that was like, like yeast working its way through the whole batch of dough. It was humble, hidden. 
Uh, Beekner talks about it this way. Frederick Beekner writes, ultimate mystery born with the skull, you could crush one-handed. Incarnation. It is not tame. It is not touching. It's not even beautiful. It's unthinkable darkness riven with unbearable light. Agonized laboring led to it. Vast upheavals of intergalactic space, time split apart, a wrenching and tearing of the very sinews of reality itself. Beekner talks about the agonized laboring that led to the tearing apart of an old reality to bring in a new. And it doesn't take very long to live in the world to realize, well, the new hasn't fully come yet. Yes? The sinews of the new reality of Jesus has not yet worked its way through the whole batch of dough. Am I right? Because we know that. We know that we live in the now and the not yet. And what, how do we know that we live in the not yet? Well, dark, death still happens, doesn't it? People still get sick. Even our most beloved friends and family succumb to sickness. Uh, we know that many of our brothers and sisters around the world are still being persecuted. I mean, look, it's easy to look at the world and to say, the world is ending. And what Jesus wants to say is, nope, that's not what it looks like. It doesn't look like doom. It doesn't look like distress. It doesn't look like hardship. It looks like power. It looks like glory. And when I come, I do not bring distress and darkness and doom after me. I bring life. won't be a secret. People will all know about it. And then it'll also be reunion. He's going to gather his children from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. The end is coming. It's reunion. It's restoration. And that's the good news of Advent. That's the hopeful news of Advent. Basically, the news of Advent is no matter how bad it gets, and it's going to get bad. And if you were a first century Jew, and you were like, man, the temple is going to get restored, and now Jesus is saying, no, the temple is not going to get restored. It's actually going to get destroyed. Jesus is saying, no matter how bad it gets, that's not the end. The end belongs to the one who Peter tells us will restore all things. In other words, the end is not, as Yeats would call it, the blood-dimmed tide. It's not destruction that follows in Jesus' wake. When he comes back again, it's restoration, it's resurrection, it's life, it's Eden. That's what comes back when Jesus comes back again. Uh, I, with all due respect to this magnificent poet, listen, the center will hold. The center will hold. And why will it hold? Because it belongs to Jesus. The end to end all endings belongs to Jesus. And when he comes, it's everything restored back to Eden. Because Jesus is the eternal spring, the summer to end the winter of sin and death. That's what he is. And so speaking of summer, let's look at the next verse. Now, learn this lesson uh, verse 28, from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And this is a little strange to find 
these verses in the midst of verses about the second coming, but here's what these verses mean. This lesson from the fig tree is about the temple. Uh, most scholars would agree uh, in, with, with the New Testament scholar Timothy Gumbus. He tells us, just like the fig trees give signs that summer is near by bearing leaves, so the disciples need to pay attention to the signs of growing chaos and violence that are going to lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem. And so this strange passage which, in which Jesus says this generation will certainly not pass away, the generation that Jesus is talking about is a generation that will see the temple destroyed. This is about the temple. And why does that matter to you and me? The temple, AD 70, why does that matter to you and me? Well, here's why it matters. Some of you might recall that in a, a couple chapters earlier, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem after the triumphal entry, he finds a fig tree. Uh, and he finds this fig tree, and he goes up to it, and he looks at it, and there's no fruit, but there's leaves. And he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Does anyone recall this strange little episode? So you're like, man, I guess he doesn't like fig trees, you know? And then... Just a few verses later, Peter comes back and is like, oh my gosh, master, look, the tree has withered. Some of you remember that, yes? So he curses the fig tree, they come back, the tree has withered. Does anyone remember what happened in between the cursing and the withering? Anyone remember? Jesus goes into the temple. He goes into the temple. And what does he do in the temple? Does anyone remember? Yeah, he wasn't happy. Goes in the temple finds money changers, he finds vendors, and he overturns the tables, and uh, John tells us that he makes a whip out of cords and he drives off from the temple cords. Uh, it's the temple. So I think what Mar Mark is masterfully doing is he's making connection between the temple and the fig tree that is cursed and withered. Now, part of what Mark is saying to us is the temple had become a fig tree that bore no fruit. Jesus himself, we know this because we know the, that the gospel would tell us that Jesus himself makes obsolete the temple, yes? We know that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, uh, becomes a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins for all time, making obsolete the animal sacrifices of the temple. We know this. We know that when Jesus was talking with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, that he tells her, hey, a time is coming and has now come when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. It's not a constrained to a place. He tells he tells the Samaritan woman, hey, look, a time is coming when you're going to be a temple. When you will be so close to me that you will bear my heart inside of you. This is what Jesus tells the Samaritan woman and what he has to say to you and me. And I think part of what Mark is telling us is he's telling us there is a fig tree that will always bear fruit. There's a fig tree that has ceased to bear fruit in the temple but Jesus is the tree that always bears fruit. This is part of what he's doing. He's making a contrast between the temple and Jesus. Jesus is the tree that always bears fruit because he is the eternal summer for you and me. The one that always makes us to bear fruit. The one who will ensure in the end that we, that we will live on the banks of the river of life with the trees of life heavy with fruit above us. That's the promise at the end of time of Jesus that summer is coming. 
And that summer is always going to last. That's the promise. When Jesus returns back again, it's not doomsday, it's summer. Now, I know that we live in cold weather. Yes? I keep hoping, by the way, every year I keep hoping, maybe it won't be as cold. Maybe when we get to November and December, uh, we'll all of a sudden, you know, look, it'll flip. And, and then, you know, we'll have summer again. Uh, how many of you in January and February start to say, I got to move? I cannot live here any longer. Anybody? Yeah, I mean, like, it's cold here. But I can't help, and I know that's different from, I know that this is different from millions of people in our world, but I can't help but feel like winter is like a parable to us. For us Chicagoans, Advent is in winter, and my encouragement to all of us is every time we go out in the cold and we are scraping the ice off of our cars, or we do the smart thing that we only remember to do one out of every 50 times, which is go out and start the car so that everything will be melted. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, my encouragement, though, to all of us is to remember every time we go outside and we feel the nip of the cold weather on our faces that we remember it's not going to last. Winter is not our future. The winter of sin and death that's not destined to last. Why? Because of Jesus. Jesus is the end to end all endings, most especially the long winter of sin and death. And one way that we can hold on to hope is that every time we go out in a cold weather, we can remember it's not going to last. It's not going to last. No more, I don't think. I mean, some of us like cold weather. I get that. And we'll be able to experience that, I'm sure, in the new heaven and the new earth. I'm sure we will. Um, but, but have fun. I'll watch you from where I'm at, where the weather is absolutely perfect. Uh, and I can say, you know, no, uh, finally, to negative 20 wind chill and all of that, you know. Like, but every time we do that, I wonder if part of the invitation for us to hold on to hope is to remember the cold is not going to last because summer is coming. One of the ways that we can hold on to Advent hope is we can remember that the end is not lanced with doom, but the end is full of life. And the end is not winter, but the end is actually summer. And we can remember that, and the cold can remind us of that. And I hope that that's what you do every day. That you walk out to the cold and go, oh my gosh, I can't live here any longer. That you would remember it's not going to last. It's not going to last. But uh, Mark, Jesus, as, as, as he usually does, tells us more about holding on to hope, and that's what these last few verses are about. So let me read these verses, and I'll talk a little bit more about holding on to hope, and, um, and we'll pray. But here we go, verse 32. Uh, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. And he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, Watch. 
Here's the other way that you can hold on to hope. You can hold on to the hope by remembering that the end does not belong to doom, but belongs to Jesus. You can hold on to hope by remembering that he's the eternal summer. And you can also hold on to hope by keeping watch. And it's not the kind of watching out that we do like for the police to come because we're doing mischief. Somebody needs to keep watch. Or it's not the kind of watching out because now is the time for the real fun, but when the dad of the universe comes back, we better behave. You know, it's not that kind of watching. It's the kind of watching that is eager anticipation. The kind when you maybe are reunited with your parents after a long time away, or the kind of watching out for your kids to return from camp, or the kind of watching out at the airport for a long-lost relative or a friend. That's the kind of watching out that Jesus is asking us to do. That kind of watching out makes us act a certain way, doesn't it? In our lives, doesn't it make us act a certain way? Like if you're waiting for your spouse to come back after a long trip, you're ready your home and your heart, and you most certainly don't cheat on them. Yes? I mean, this is something about the return fires up the way that we act. There's an ethical dimension to our watching. Part of keeping watch is acting a certain way, and how we act as we wait on Jesus to return, tells us a lot about what we believe. Some of you remember the parable of the talents. Do you remember the parable of the talents? You got five talents, two talents, one talent. And uh, each talent is a small fortune. The first two invest their talents. The last one buries it. And then when the master comes back, the servant who buried the talent says, Master, I knew that you were a hard man. Harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and hid your talent or gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. Who are we in this parable? Like, do we believe that our Jesus is a hard, ungenerous, harsh master? Or is he summer? I mean, we can tell a lot about what we believe about him by how we are acting as we await his return. Like, what would you want him to find you doing? Imagine he were to come back right now. What would you want him to find you doing? I'm preaching. That's, I'm preaching. You know, like, what, what would you want him to find you doing? I mean, like, coming back at every moment, what would you want him to find you doing? Here's um, how one of my favorite writers, C.S. Lewis, puts it. Uh, he puts it in On Living in the Atomic Age. Some of you are old enough to remember when we were constantly faced with the threat of, the, of a nuclear winter. Does anyone remember that? Like the atomic age? I mean, we still have sort of rumblings about it, but back in the 80s, we always talked about it. Now I'm dating myself. We were like, oh my goodness, uh, what would happen if the world like just flares up and people start firing atomic bombs at one another? Or what we, we had shows about it. I read lots of... Sh- lots of books about it. Does anyone remember that time? Yeah, it was pretty scary. And here's what C.S. Lewis writes. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing playing pickleball, because nobody plays tennis anymore, right? We play pickleball now. Chatting to our friends over a pint in a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep 
thinking about bombs and thinking that those bombs are the end when the end really belongs to actually Jesus. Lewis's words to us are about feeling like we're living with that feeling that the world is going to end, a feeling that, that I'm familiar with, that we're familiar with. We live in a world that oftentimes feels like doom, but the point is still the same for us today. You live with a hope anchored in a different kind of reality. Here's the thing about Christian hope. Any other kind of hope in any other kind of system falls subject to the circumstances around it. But Christian hope doesn't. Our Christian hope is founded, no matter how much distress or how much doom there might be, it doesn't matter. Those things are not the end. But if your hope is located somewhere different, I can see how you'd look at the world and go, wow, we live in a pretty hard, difficult place. But Lewis is saying to us, if you hold on to the hope that is Jesus, how you live, it, as it turns out, really matters. You don't live huddled and frightened thinking about bombs. You live and embody the flourishing life. Here's the other thing that I want to say. Maybe you're listening to this and you think, man, this is the sort of slightly embarrassing fanaticism uh, that can accompany our faith. Like I, I walk by a guy every day with a sandwich board telling me the end is near. Uh, and for those of us who grew up in the maybe the or know the '90s, you all remember Left Behind, the series Left Behind. You know, um, some of you don't know what that is, and you should, I don't know, you should do something with that. But anyway, you look at Left Behind, and you look at the sandwich board, and you think, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not that kind of Christian. Well, let's be honest, right? Some of us feel that way. Yes, you don't have to raise your hand, but some of us look at that fanaticism and go. Man, you know, I believe in Jesus' return. We talk about it. I read it in the Bible. But honestly, those folks are weird and are on the lunatic fringe, the folks that agitate about the return of Jesus. And I'm just like leaning on Jesus my friend. He helps me to navigate my daily life. And I don't really think about Jesus as the one who will return to come and change everything and everyone. In fact, if you're honest, you actually feel pretty comfortable with our world. Like, I, I think it's okay. I mean, if I look at all the stats and all the data, we live in a safer world than we did in the 1970s or the 1960s. Boy, I'm glad I didn't grow up in the 1960s, you know? Like, and you look at the world and you think, I think I'm okay, and I just need you to help me figure out, like, Jesus, please, would you give me some wisdom about whether you should buy this house or invest in these stocks or whatever, you know? I mean, if this is you and you feel pretty comfortable with the world as it is, I wonder if we need to look in the mirror and ask ourselves the question, what do we really want? Because here's the thing. If you were a first century Christian living in the world at the time when Jesus had just ascended, you would have been like, man, everything hinges on Jesus coming back again. If you were a first century Christian, you'd have thought, things are very bad. We're getting killed. There's plagues. Uh, when are you coming back Again, I mean, early Christians lived in a world that was falling apart, extremely hostile to them. So they lived on the edge of their seats for the return. And how do we live? Maybe we live comfortably in the back of our seats with our legs crossed going, I, you know, I believe in it, but I'm not desperate for it. And I'm asking you today, why not? 
Because Jesus had to warn his disciples not to put too much stock in signs. You know, like, don't look at all these signs and don't look at all this present distress and don't try to decode when the end of the world is coming. Don't try to interpret and make predictions because no one knows the hour. You You heard me read that. Not even Jesus. He had to warn them because they were so desperate for him to come back. If we're not at least a little desperate, then I wonder if Jesus' words to us might be, you're sleeping. You're sleeping. Wake up. Wake up. Watch. Wake up. Would you turn to your neighbor and say, wake up? Some of you actually are sleeping. (laughs) Some of you have come to church and you've been like, man, I really like coming to church because there's that 35 minutes or so in the middle of that service when I get a nap. Well, the jig is up. Wake up. Wake up. Stop. Stop sleeping. I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm kidding. Although some of you, we could talk later, but you know what I mean, right? Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. Watch. Wake up. Turn to your neighbor and say, wake up and watch. I mean, this is what we are to do. We hold on to hope by watching. And the watching, the kind of watching that we do ought to make us act a certain way. But there's another way that we, we watch too. And let me share that very, very quickly as we close. I mean, so in summary, Jesus is the end. When he comes, life comes after him. He is the eternal summer. And we watch. Uh, we keep hope by watching, excuse me. And so how do we watch? Well, we watch by acting a certain way. But the other thing that we do is that we invite others to watch with us. We share our hope. That's what you do when you find something that's really hopeful. And if you live in a world that feels like it's falling apart, you go, you know what? I've got a hope. And here's my hope. And here's actually what Jesus tells us earlier in Mark 13. He tells us uh, in verse 11, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but... Here's the promise. Everyone say it with me. The Holy Spirit. So here is Jesus talking about the end of the world and saying, I expect that you will be put in front of people to give an answer for why you hope the way that you do. And here's my promise to you. It's not even going to be you speaking when you do that. It's going to be the Holy Spirit. That's pretty good hope, isn't it? But then... It makes me ask the question, when was the last time that you were in a situation where you're like, you better help me, because I, I have just been asked about my faith, I have just been asked about my hope, and I have no idea what to say. Or what I have to say is, that's a great question, let me introduce you to my pastor, or my pastor can help you, or Pastor Steve, or somebody. They, they, they have a reason, you know. Uh, the Holy Spirit will speak to them. Like, when was the last time you were in a situation, I mean, honestly, when was the last time you were in a situation when someone came to you and said, I have noticed you, I have watched you, and I have lots of curiosity about why you are the way that you are? When was the last time somebody did that? The answer to that question should tell you about the way that you're watching. You know, it's interesting when I have friends that have trouble or distress, I mean, it's easy for them, for me to share my hope with them. 
Like, I, I want to say, well, hey, listen, can I tell you about Jesus? I mean, that's distress, trouble. Uh, they become automatic invitations for me to share my hope. But Jesus tells us in Mark 13, listen, something is already being birthed. You don't need to wait on distress as the primary reason because something is already being birthed. He actually uses the word birth pains. Uh, And the birth pains, I I think uh, if you read Mark 13, you could be confused and look at Mark 13 and go, well, all these bad things happening are birth pains. But they're not. They're not. They're not. The thing that actually is starting these pains happening, this, this laboring to happen, is because Jesus himself is when he came with his death and resurrection, when he came, he reset the trajectory of the world toward love, hope, and restoration. That birth has already happened. It's already happening. And so all these bad things are just attendant to that. They're not clues that the birth is actually coming. No, no, Jesus is already setting the world that way. And the stunning promise is that we are invited into sharing that hope. And as we do... In no other clear way, I don't really see this in any other clear way in the scriptures. Jesus is actually saying to you, when you open your mouth in a situation like that, it's not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. I mean, like, it's hardly anywhere else in the scriptures where you can get the promise that that's sure. If I want the Holy Spirit to speak through me, well, what do I do? Well, you stand up and give a reason for your hope. That's what you do. So, could we all stand as we close? Uh, if you're able, you can stand with us. We're just going to pray. Um, I think, Look, I think it's like really easy to look at trouble and go, the world is going to end. But Jesus tells us in this passage over and over again, distress is not the sign of my coming. I am the end. I am the end. So let's pray. Could we? Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. And I particularly want to pray. Let's wait for a a few moments. I particularly want to pray for those of us who are caught in despair that the Spirit would come and fill us with hope. So come Holy Spirit and fill us with your hope, Lord.